There we go. It works. Here's our schedule. Um, we're going to be in Corinthians and First and Second Corinthians all the way till next August. Believe it or not. So um, eleven months, and we'll spend more of our time, I think, in First Corinthians. But uh, this is the schedule. And so I just want to let you know that if you would like. We would love for you to continue to have Corinthians read to you or read through it. You should be reading through it multiple times so that you can get really familiar with it. One of the tips that I do is I'm in a car, and most of the Bible apps can actually talk to you. And they'll, they'll actually, you know, you can hear 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you know, quoted to you. And so that's a lot of the time I'm just hearing you know, my little app talked to me when I'm in the car driving and, and other things. So it's really good. Get saturated with the uh, Corinthians because we're going to be in it for the next 11 months. And then that way, when, when Jay and the other teachers teach on it, you'll have more of a, a broad understanding of the whole book or two books. They're written back to back in Paul's third missionary uh, trip when he's in Ephesus, as you all know. And so the first letter went out. The second letter probably went out right away. So it's, it's, it's really good to kind of do that. So that's a little bit of um, background. I um, want you to know that uh, this is just an incredible book. And I've titled this message, The Corinthian Continental Divide. And, and I know Jay uh, went from, you know, verses 9 to 17 last week. But I'm going to kind of, we're going to start from 9 and go all the way through to 31 because the two really are inseparably linked. In fact, Using that reason, we could go into chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, because Paul is going to use the first four chapters to basically note the divisions going on in the Corinthian church. So anyway, I, I call this a Corinthian continental divide, and we're going to start with there. If you were to take um, six words to, to basically summarize what's going on in the Corinthian church and the antidote, it's division, 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 right? And then Christ, Christ, Christ. It's really where we're going with this. And Christ, it's, when someone says it's all about the gospel, you know, what does that mean? What that means is it begins with Christ crucified, but then what did Christ say, his word? And, and, and loving Jesus Christ, as Tom um, uh, preached this morning, that's, our, that's our, our focus, loving the Lord Jesus Christ, um, looking at his word, esteeming his word, and using that as the unifying um, uh, a glue, if you will, in a, in a congregation, a local congregation of believers. And that's really the summary of, of 1 Corinthians, especially these first four verses. So I'm going to really divide it, as you see in your outline, a corrective command. In other words, Paul steps, starts right out and says, don't do this. Don't be, you know, deunified. Uh, and then he gives the countermeasure, obedience to Christ, his word. Um, it powerfully unites his church, and that's 18 to 31. So that now you know um, the first chapter, uh, besides the introduction, you know um, basically how to, how to divide Corinthians down. I don't know if you know about the Continental Divide. We go across the United States, you know, driving Route 66, and we get to a point where it says Continental Divide. And, and what the Continental Divide is, this isn't a science lesson, lesson, but you take your coffee, and if you were to pour it right where the Continental Divide is, half of the water would go to the Pacific Ocean. I get it. Evaporation, that wouldn't happen. Just work with the illustration. Okay, the, the water would go from that one cup of coffee all the way to the Pacific Ocean on one side, and then, and then, and then the other 
water or coffee would pour to the Atlantic Ocean. That's what the Continental Divide is. And, and we have all these the cracks in the Earth's crust, right? And plate tectonics, which we're not going to talk about today, but if you'd like to know about plate tectonics, we can have a long conversation about that. But it, you'll notice that uh, we have um, this one crack that goes from the Alaska all the way down uh, to South America, and this is what it looks like on a map. It, it's, it's a crack. It, it's a divide. And, and, and it, it basically severs um, the North American continent. Uh, this is what it looks like from a weather balloon uh, looking at the Rocky Mountains. So you can actually look at the, uh, you know, with the mountains, you can almost see where the continental divide is. And uh, please, for those of you who believe in a flat earth, notice there's curvature from that, that photo on the weather balloon. Uh, this will dispel your, your false uh, theology of the world being flat, the four corners. It's round, believe me. And here's what it is um, uh, at the ground. For those of you who are hikers, and, you know, Rocky Mountain High, you know, uh, John Denver, for those of you who don't know who John Denver is. Uh, but this is what it looks like, Logan's Pass. And, and there's a crack there. And, and so whether or not you're looking from space or a weather balloon or looking on a map uh, or looking at a diagram, uh, you, you can see the effect that this, that this has uh, on, on the continent. And it's really important for us to understand that um, there is a, a continental divide that can occur within a local body of believers, a, a, a continental-like division within the church. It's serious. And, and, and the fractures and what it can do uh, with the, um, just our, our fellowship within the church. And, and that's what Paul's describing in the first chapter. And, and the far-reaching consequences uh, if we don't address uh, factions within a church. So we have uh, the corrective command, and then we have, of course, uh, the countermeasure. And a countermeasure, this is a definition of a countermeasure, an action taken to counteract a danger or threat. For every clever defense that plants devise, some animal seems to be able to come up with its countermeasure. That's how it's used in a sentence. But it's basically to counteract a danger or threat. So let's go ahead, um, we'll get to that. Let's go ahead and read the passage, starting with verse 9, all the way through verse 31. So open your Bibles or open your uh, whatever you have to read the Word of God. Uh, God is faithful, uh, through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, notice the word brethren. He repeats that four times all the way through to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He uses the term brother. It's a term of endearment. Uh, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, for you have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, I've been informed that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that uh, each one of you is saying, and here are the four eyes of the text, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, I am Cephas, and the, the Christ people, I am of Christ. You can almost see it in the, in the way that they separate themselves out in, in the different parties. Has Christ been divided? Uh, was not Paul crucified for you? Was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is sarcasm. This is deep sarcasm. You can just see it oozing out. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, come to think of it, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I'm really not sure who I baptized. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And so he takes that cleverness of speech in verse 17, he's gonna carry that on to verse 18, and now we look at the countermeasure, obedience to Christ, his word, how it powerfully unites the church. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the word of the cross is power of God to us who are being saved by it. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Oh, an Old Testament quote. I wonder what that's referring to. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Uh, where's the debater of this age? Where's the philosopher? Where's the secular scientist? Where's the humanist? I added that to the text. So it's just a side. But, but, but that's, that's really, where are these folks? Uh, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Uh, but God was well pleased and through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, the Jews asked for signs, right? And the Greeks in their flawed philosophy searched for wisdom. But we breach Christ, crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And here's the bottom line. Consider your calling, brethren. Uh, this is the third time he uses the word brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, uh, not many mighty, and not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen, and that's implied, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, uh, the base things of the world. And God has chosen and the despised and the things that are not of the world so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, this is election again, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so in case we didn't get what Paul is saying, in verse 31, he says, let him who boasts, boasts not in a man, not in Paul, not in Cephas, not in Pennington, not in MacArthur, not in Lawson, or anyone else, but let him boast in the Lord. And if you go to 2.1, and when I came to you, brothers, it's the fourth time. It's interesting, just even taking that word, and you know we're going to look at the Corinthian church and see um, why that is so important uh, in, in Paul's addressing the church in this compassionate way. Well, here's the map. You got it. Corinthian uh, and, and, and Ephesians, those are the two, two real major cities that, that are important to this uh, discussion. We have uh, Paul's first missionary journey. We have his second missionary journey. He touches base with Corinth for just a little bit. But then on the, the third missionary journey, he's in Ephesus, right? And, um, and he's there for three years, and he writes First and Second Corinthians and sends it over to Corinth. And um, so that's where we're at. What's interesting to note, too, is that the narrative is sent in concrete. It's, sent, it's, it's, it's set in a, a, really a historical concrete. We don't divorce creation from 
um, the Old Testament and from what went on around there. Uh, we don't divorce the things that happened to Israel. And, and it's interesting, there's a statement that's uh, in the Word that in Acts 18.12, talking about Gallio as proconsul of Achaia while Paul is in Corinth. And we have, we have literature in archaeology basically pins that date down to around 54, 55 A.D., What's really cool is we get these little glimpses, even in archaeology, but in the Word, and it ties the Word together. So the, the crucifixion of Christ, or the birth of Christ, or the exact location of where he was, it's all in the concrete of, of history, and we, we can't divorce the two. And it's really important for us to understand that. I love the excavations that are being done in Corinth. They're, they're just uncovering, and maybe some of you have been out there to see it, but it's just fascinating to see the really the Word just really comes to full color when we see what the, these places look like. Uh, the Isthmus, uh, you got it. It was there in a peninsula. A lot of people would travel through. God providentially put the Corinth church right there. They had a lot of people going through there, so it was just the perfect place for the church to grow and, and, the, and the church to um, be right at a, at a really good, good uh, platform. Uh, the, the scholar, the Greek scholar Robertson says that the that this was penned probably early spring, either 54 or 55, and MacArthur uh, says the same thing. He says it was most likely written in the first half of 55 from Ephesus while Paul was on his third missionary journey, just for, just for application. We have that. What's really cool, and I, I, I know you've already gone through it, but we have this isthmus there, and, and so they would... Um, it's really neat. Uh, you see right here, uh, they actually had this, this stone road uh, that would go over the isthmus and they would put logs down or even carts if it was a smaller ship or if it was a bigger ship. They would roll the ship along the land to the other side rather than making that, that really treacherous uh, journey around. And um, you just imagine, you know, I was just thinking, I like to use my sanctified imagination. Just think about, you're sitting there drinking your, your you know, your, your Starbucks coffee. I mean, they had Starbucks, right, in Corinth? <laughs> so, so you're sitting there and the ship, is just going on dry land right across. Could you just imagine that? Wouldn't that be cool, you know? And, and I, just, I just think that's, that's really cool. Well, they got tired of doing that, so Nero started, Nero started chiseling out, um, but he died, they stopped the project, and then it was re resumed back in the 1800s, and so now there's a cut that goes all the way through, and, um, and you can see it right there, right there. There's the cut. It's kind of cool. And there's a cruise ship going through the cut. Isn't that neat? And, and I've been told that if you go at a certain speed, the wake is going to keep the ship right in the center and keep it from, I, I've been told that. I was corrected after my first lesson. But isn't that cool? I, I was thinking of the guy going, okay, a little to the right. Bang. No, he went too far to the right, you know. <clears throat> anyway. The outline. Uh, this is the XL Ministry booklet outline. This is what our, our elders basically memorize when they're going through um, their, you know, their, their grilling. Um, that's the outline. This is the outline from the MacArthur Bible, and I've made some changes to it. It's really important for us to take a look at this because notice all of the stuff that's on this outline. You have um, uh, the hope of the church. You have worship. You have liberty. You have marriage. You have immorality. You have all this junk that's going on in the Corinthian church. 
animals, you know, sacrificed to idols? And, and how do I behave when I'm eating a roast beef that's been, you know, dedicated to the idols? Or, um, you know, the tongues thing, Corinthians 14, communion. They were drunk. I mean, there's so many sins. And so Paul sits down and, and you, you know, he triages something. And, you know, when I, 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 had, I had a hernia last week or last month. And so I go into the emergency room. I'm hurting, you know. It's, I, I, I have a hernia. And, and so they said, well, just sit over there in the corner. And so I sat over there in the corner. And they, they, they ignored me. I have a hernia. It hurts, you know. Well, we have, you know, cardiac patients. We have people bleeding. We have gunshot. No, there weren't any gunshot. We have people that, and so they're, they're more important than your, your little hernia. It's important, but we'll get to it. I actually ended up leaving and uh, just took care of it a couple weeks later. But the, the point that I'm making is, is that Paul is triaging all the stuff that's going on, and what does he put at the top? What does he address first in chapter one? Unity. You know, I would have put the, the immorality up there at the top, right? Wouldn't you? Or getting drunk at communion? Could you imagine someone getting drunk and coming to communion at Countryside Bible? These are some major things that are going on within the church, but Paul is focused first and foremost about uh, unity, and, and that's what that outlined. Here, here's the theme. Uh, condemnation correction is, is one looking at, I like, I like the negative positive. A weak commitment to doctrine and result commitment to disunity of doctrine will always weaken a local body of believers, destroying true unity. It, the word of God uh, and doctrine, and doctrine is a dirty word in some congregations, but it's, it's beautiful because it takes all of the truth of God's word in it and it puts it together in these neat little packages. But doctrine is what's going to keep us together uh, if, we, uh, if we submit ourselves to, to that doctrine. So that's a negative. But let's look at the positive. You know, we're always looking at condemnation. Let's look at positive. Doctrinal unity is clearly based on Christ and Scripture and both the foundation of all church life. And that's what we want to focus on. It's all about Christ. It's all about falling madly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ more and more each day. It's all about obeying his word. And if we do that individually, if we do it corporately, um, all the divisions that we see even in um, uh, Corinth, they'll, they'll vanish, they'll go away. It won't be perfect, it's direction, not perfection, but still, it's going to eliminate a lot of the stuff that's going on uh, in this congregation. And, and I would say the overall key verses for um, really the whole book is the word calling. If you do a word study, um, who's the... Who's the precepts leader? Um, what's her name who put precepts together? K. Arthur. So my wife's Bible has, I can tell when she's going through a K. Arthur study because then she's all these different colored, all the words are all colored. What does it mean, you know? But, but she's, she's, she's actually identifying key words. If you identify a key word for Corinthians, it's this word calling or called. And, and he, he repeats it 15 times. In, in 1 Corinthians, only once in 2 Corinthians, Romans comes in second, but all the other books, they average about 2.5, 3, 3 uh, average calling. So calling is really important. And, and Paul is going to tell us this calling is really foundational to us working together. 
and, and being together and serving together as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. So um, the first time it's mentioned, and it's mentioned a number of times, is God is faithful through whom you were called in verse 9. And look at verse 26. For consider your calling that there were not many wise. And so Paul is actually saying, hey, look, you were called. There are not many wise. The foolishness of this world, the wisdom of the word, to the, to the world that looks foolish. And God is saying, from my perspective, the world is foolish. And so, but it's a calling and we're actually going to begin in verse 9, and we're going to end in, in verse 31 with calling. And, and he's going to underscore that. So it's really important for us to get it as well. Just for the chapter, I would say these are the key, key verses because it actually is my outline. I, I exhort to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and there be no divisions, the command, if you will. And then in verse 31, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I'm sorry, that's verse 18. And then 31, uh, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that really takes us to now the, uh, the command. And this, this is, we're going over, this is really more of a review, but what I want to do is I want to really uh, put it in, in perspective to, um, to the next chapter. The command, uh, verse 10, uh, based on, on the theology of the first nine verses, I exhort you, I beg you, and this is a New Testament term, it's, it's repeated like a hundred times in the New Testament. Paul's on his knees, please, I'm pleading with you to, to basically get your act together. I exhort you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if, if a king sent an emissary to a certain town and basically had the word of the king, he would say, based on the name of the king. So Paul is basically saying, hey, look, I, I'm inspired. I, I'm, I, I'm being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. These are the words of God. I'm coming to you in the name of Christ. Pay attention to, to these, these words. That's what Paul is saying. It had great power in this time period. And, and so we need to understand that. Uh, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says that you all agree um, that's a present subjunctive. They, he says, keep on. He says that you all agree. Keep on speaking. Keep on agreeing, uh, basically. Uh, why? Uh, because there are, that there be no divisions, and that's a schema or a schisma. It's a, it's a word that carries over in the English as well, but it's, it's to split or rend. Uh, it was used when a, a splinter would, would, would be taken away from a log, a splinter. It's separated. It would be used when you were plowing a field and you were separating the ground, and that's how the word is used. And we already talked about divisions covered in the outline, uh, immorality, court, marriage, meats offered to idols, conduct of women in the church, the Lord's Supper, the use of spiritual gifts, even misunderstandings about the resurrection of Christ. And it was causing divisions, and so the teaching maybe wasn't clear, concise. Maybe the elders weren't doing what they needed to do to really be definitive. We don't know why they're there, but they're there nonetheless, and it's because they're not paying attention to uh, the Word of God. And I love that, being made complete, that you, but, but that you be made complete. That's really fixing or repairing torn nets. That's, that's the idea there. It's um, a surgeon fixing some sort of a, a problem or mending torn joints. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, write that down. It's really good. Uh, As night and day, keep praying earnestly that we might see your face and may complete 
what is lacking in your faith. Do you see what he's saying? Is mending those nets, uh, uh, going in as a surgeon and fixing uh, the, the severed artery or the tendon or whatever the surgeon is doing. And how do we do that? Well, look at that. Um, be of the same mind, the same judgment. And, and, and so that's how it is implied. So we look at the command, and now we look at the cause. Verse 11, and we talked about this last week. Uh, for notice how I've been informed concerning you, brethren, by Chloe's people, that um, there are quarrels among you, you know, unseemly wranglings, if you will, uh, among you, dissensions, factions, envying among you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul doesn't want to come and find that. So he says, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find you to be not what I wish and maybe be found by you not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. So Paul is hoping. He, he wrote, as you know in the introduction, four separate letters to, to the Corinthians. We've, we've captured two of them that were under the inspired hand of the Holy Spirit who wanted those, those, those books to be included in the canon. But Paul is, is very anxious about this church. And, and he's really concerned about these dissensions. So we have the command, the cause. Uh, the conflict, the conflict that each of you, that, that, that each of you is saying, I'm a Paul, a Paul, a Cephas, and a Paulus. And we've already ta talked about that, or I am of Christ. Uh, there was this thing going on between Paul and Peter in the, the second, in, in, in Acts chapter 15. Remember, Paul had to call down Peter, and I'm sure Peter had followers that were very offended by that. You know, I'm sure the Paul followers uh, were saying, wow, Peter, man, he really uh, messed up there. So there's a lot of things that we can actually read into the passage where you had these groupings of people. Apollos replaced Paul in Corinth, and he was, uh, he was eloquent, the Bible tells us. He was a smooth um, speaker, probably equivalent to the, uh, the Greek philosophers of the day. And Paul says, I wasn't that. And so I'm sure that, hey, I want to follow him because he's really easy to listen to. And I understand that I really get into Apollos. So you can see how these divisions could start occurring. And then all the people that were just tired of the church completely, they, 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 they started their own little pact and they called them the Christ people. You know, we're going to be of Christ. Uh, divided, you know, which doesn't make sense at all. And so that's really the, the four, four, four divisions. And that's, that's really the, the, the conflict that's going on in this group. And now we're going to say the case. Paul is basically in the courtroom, and, and the Corinthian church is before him, and he's, he's basically saying, okay, uh, has Christ been divided? The answer is no. This is sarcasm. This is deep sarcasm, as I said before. Uh, was not... Was Paul was not crucified for you, was he? And notice how he chooses himself. He doesn't choose Peter. He doesn't choose Apollos. But this is really a humble way of making a point. He uses himself. So he's, it's really cool the way Paul is, is really orchestrating this through the control of the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about baptism. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. And then all of a sudden he does this parenthetical little detour. And he says, okay, um, let's see, how many people did I baptize? Okay, there's Christmas and Gaius. And, and then if he's, if, he's, if he's dictating it to his, his recorder, the recorder says, Stephanus, we need to include Stephanus here. And he goes, oh, by the way, um, uh, Stephanus. Now, I did 
baptized the household of Stephanus. Household's not in the Greek, but it's a good translation because it could include uh, mother, dad, um, kids that were older, servants, the household, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. It's interesting that he includes Stephanus, and it's interesting that he was one of maybe four people total that Paul baptized. And if you want to do a little search, it's kind of cool. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, 17 through 18, it looks, this Stephanus guy was a real encourager. He loved Paul. And you can almost see Paul, whenever he'd see Stephanus, he probably had that twinkle in his eye and his joy. Oh, I've got this, this guy who's going to encourage me. I rejoice over the presence of Stephanus and Fortunus. And he says, for they have refreshed my spirit in yours. And I like this, just kind of this little offshoot that in an application is, how many of you have Stephanuses in your life, you know, that encourage you and, 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 and are a joy to you? And then let me turn that around. How many of you are that to people around you in your sphere of influence? So I, I like that. I just kind of reached out. And I, I was thinking about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And in, in, between, in the white spaces of the Gospels, there's a special relationship going on between Christ, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And I'm sure when Christ saw, you know, Lazarus, he just, he beamed. You know, Lazarus was a very, very encouraging uh, man to him, even in his ministry and his humanity. And, and I just wanted to take, uh, take a step. But let's get back to the baptism. I didn't baptize any of you. Uh, why? Uh, because in Jesus, didn't, isn't it interesting that Christ knew that if he started baptizing people, it would be a problem now. You know, that I am of Christ's people could have been very well the ones that were baptized by Christ. It says right here, Christ didn't baptize anyone. We know that through, through the Gospels. Now, baptism is important. You know what's interesting about this too, that if, 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 if salvation saved us, then, then preaching the Gospel would include baptism, right? If, if baptism is on this side and it includes justification, righteousness, and being sanctified, and we get that all at the moment of salvation, if baptism is salvatory, then, 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 then Paul probably would be baptizing. Christ would be baptizing. But, but it's on this side. It's, it's important. We do it. We do it as a church, right? But it, but it doesn't add anything to our salvation, does it? We do it in memorial. We do it as a, a testimony as a what went on when we, were, when we were saved. And so I love the separation that, that if, if baptism was more than just a remembrance, then, then Paul would be probably saying more about it at this point. It's a, but don't get me wrong, it's definitely a command to be followed in Christian obedience, but following the actual faith and repentance required for salvation. You know, it's interesting that it says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, that, that the gospel which I gospelized to you, that's a, a Chaz translation, but it's the fact that that's what Paul was doing. That was his focus. And there were times when Christ would basically escape the crowd so that he could preach. Preach was predominant in Christ's ministry. He did the miracles to validate who he was, but his main bent in life was to preach. And we can all be thankful for that because of what has been captured in the New Testament, the words of Christ. They're all important. Uh, it's not one red letter over the, the black letters. What, why do we have those red letter Bibles? Does it imply that, that those, anyway, that's another talk altogether. 
But anyway, um, but he came to preach. And, and here's the case, and it takes us really to, we have the cause, the conflict, the case. I'm sorry, I didn't speed up. You can ding me on it when you evaluate uh, my batteries falling out of my, my thing and not follow and not keeping up with my slides. Oh, wow. Let's give him a hand. There we go. This is so great. I love this. Yeah, so, so you're going to see we're going to ask you about today. Is, yeah, Chaz, he ran to the bathroom when he was introduced. Uh, he didn't have his mic on. And, and he was throwing these things at us, right? Let's see if it works. Ooh, you're good. You're good. So we have the command, cause, conflict, case. And now we get to the countermeasure part. This is really now why it's so important for us to understand the next. Uh, obedience to Christ's word powerfully unites his church. And, and so Paul is saying, you know, I didn't come to preach, but he goes right off. Look at in verse 18. Uh, and I'm here uh, preaching the word, the cross. It, it, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, a moron. It, the people who are perishing look at our stuff and they say, you guys are a bunch of morons because you believe in foolish fables from the Bible. And, and yet it's the power of God to us who are being saved by. We have two groups of people, right? We have the, the world, and, and then we have those who are, are called. That's a key word. And we're in Christ. And Paul's reminding us, you're in Christ. You have everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And, and so now he's showing the difference between the, the wisdom of the world and, and then the, um, the wisdom that we see in God's word. So he takes the theme of verse 17, not in cleverness of speech, and he contrasts that with the preaching of the word, the word of the cross. It's power to those who are being saved by it. Interesting, saved. I thought I was saved. And, and this is a present passive participle. So in other words, what that means putting it in, in, in Chaz talk, it says that you were saved, right? You came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but you are being saved right now. And guess what? In the future, when we go to heaven, we'll be saved again. What are you talking about? There's three, three tenses to, or th of salvation. It comes in three parts. And I, and I really do believe that Paul is using this in the, in the, where we're at right now because he's concerned about the Corinthians coming together. So he's talking about the next form of salvation. But here's a completed action. You came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ got a hold of you, and, and, and you were transformed in repentance and faith. Uh, hopefully, all of you have done that. If you haven't, you need to, because this does not make sense to you. You are looking at this as foolishness uh, until you embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then it all makes sense because the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and he makes sense of the word. But it, salvation comes in three parts. There's, that's the past. The present is a continuing process. That's what I believe is being really emphasized right here. And we are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then salvation in three parts. I'm going to post these slides so you can basically uh, look at them afterwards. But we have the future glorification, which we are all looking forward to. Are you looking forward to it as I am? Amen. I love that. The future. You know, it's interesting. You have the two forms of wisdom being contrasted. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, 15 through chapter 2, 13, and you all are experts now on Ecclesiastes, right? Right? You can all quote it. You've all memorized it, right? All right. I hear silence. 
But in Ecclesiastes 1.15, Solomon's going to talk about the wisdom of the world. And it just basically leads him down a dark path. You know, he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Well, that's true. You can't use the wisdom of this world to make things, you know, straight. Uh, you could look at it another way. We're in a cursed creation as well. But the bottom line is that we're talking about philosophy, wisdom, science, all of these other ideologies that you and I are familiar with, they can't solve our problems. They can't get us from point A to point B. They're not self-evident in nature. And that's what, what Solomon basically experiences. I said to myself, myself, behold, I magnify and increase wisdom more than all who are over Jerusalem and just brought nothing but heartache. And so Paul is actually making that point in this passage. And, and that's what we need, we glean from that. And yet there is a differentiate between the wisdom that we see in God's word and the wisdom that we can experientially uh, discern from, from nature. Now I'm not saying all wisdom is bad. I mean, there's a lot of wise things being said by the secular world, but when we're talking about philosophers who are trying to learn about God just strictly by wisdom, inevitably, whatever they write or whatever they publish, you're going to take their writing, and how are you going to know whether it's true or not? You're going to compare it to the Word. So why not just throw it away and just start with the Word, and we'll be good about it, right? And that's really the focus that Paul is making. For the Word of the cross, though, is foolishness, moron is the word. So, so when, you, when you present the gospel to people, they're, that, they're looking at you as, you're a moron. Sometimes they say oh yeah, definitely. And I've had that a number of times. But, but we know that Matthew 7, 24 through 29, everyone who hears these words of mine, again, the wisdom of the Lord, and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the wisdom's world, wisdom Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them and, and inserts the wisdom of the world and the ideologies of the world will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And you know exactly what happened after that. It's interesting that he quotes, he says, I will destroy, verse 19, the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. You know, he demonstrates that in the word. Uh, this is from the Old Testament. This is really from Isaiah 29, 14. And, and the context is uh, a King Hezekiah, and they're about to get smoked by, um, by, the, by, by the Babylonians. They, they really tried to do an alliance with Egypt, which didn't come through. They lost a lot of money doing that. They were disobeying God. didn't work. Sennacherib is, is going. He's ready to surround. He's just taken out uh, Lachish, and now he's going to go for Jerusalem. But it's interesting. Hezekiah basically realizes, you know what? I, I need to um, pray. Wow, how profound. Pray. You know, and, and, and we, what about us? What about the situations you're all in, that I'm in? We're struggling with sin. We're struggling with, uh, you know, health concerns and a family or whatnot. How often do we try to solve it using the wisdom of the world, which may or may not be a, a bad, you know, chemo and, uh, you know, a laparoscopic surgery, all the good stuff we have out there, whatever we're talking about. But how often do we go to a, a Christian counselor first without going before the throne of grace and begging God, help me. I, I'm having this struggle with sin, all right? I'm having these, these struggles in a certain area. Help me, Lord. You know, how? Well, that's exactly what the king does. Second Kings 19, 14 through 19. Hezekiah took the letter from this Sennacherib. Who are you, this, this evil Babylonian guy? And, and he puts the letter 
and he prays over the letter. I just love it. Could you just imagine the, the imagery where he's just bowed down before the throne of grace, and he has this letter, and this letter means we are going to die, the entire city. That's what that letter represents. So he took the letter from the head of the messengers, he read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord. He spread it before the Lord. Don't you love that? How often do you spread your problems before the Lord? How often do you spread your, I don't understand this in God's word. How, how many of us seek the Lord first before we get into his word? And he prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, hear me, open your eyes, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Did God hear his voice? Did God hear that prayer? Did it make sense according to the world? No. And from the world, why are you even doing that? That's so stupid. You are going to die. And that would seem foolish to someone who didn't know Yahweh. That would be foolish to someone who didn't know the great God who parted the Red Sea. He refers to the cherubim. How many of the cherubim did God have to send to help him? And you know what? You know what one angel can do? He can annihilate 180,000 plus troops in one night. One angel. One angel. And, and are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to us as believers in Christ? I don't think we have an idea. Wouldn't it be cool to see angelic activity on this earth? You know, I'm not getting charismatic on you. But, but I... I wonder, you know, if we can see the angels at work, you know, keeping me from pulling out in front of the street to get mowed down by a semi-rig or hit by a car. I think we are going to go into eternity and, and look through that angelic dimension and see how many of these ministering spirits are helping us. Well, one of them took a sword and basically eliminated Hezekiah's problem. So, the calling. Let's start at verse 26. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, God is saying that God's wisdom isn't foolish. He's just saying you could take one of the simplest things that God does, and man doesn't even have the intellect to understand that in, 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 in God's supreme wisdom. So what sometimes looks like the weakest or most foolish acts of God are beyond what man can even comprehend. I mean, we could talk about providence too. Isn't providence amazing? When we see the workings of God through billions and billions and billions of events, do you realize that you're here? Maybe someone back distant, great, 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 great grandfather, maybe he was about to be executed in some sort of problem, you know, or some sort of persecution. He was spared at the last minute, put on a boat, came over to America, and you're here because of that. I think sometimes we don't understand all the intricacies and the billions and billions and billions of decisions that are made and yet we were called before the foundation of the earth. Isn't that amazing? We have a personal God. We have a personal Jesus that loves us. And that's what Paul's trying to bring out here. And so consider your calling, verse 26. For there are not many wise, according to the flesh, mighty and noble. 
Zechariah 4, 6, and 7 is probably quoting that verse. Paul is. Uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, another king saying, not by might, not by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God is working in a completely different dimension. Yeah. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You know, think about some of the things. Let's, let's do a Bible. let's do a flannel graph. Um, Mrs. Haggai was an 89-year-old woman who did uh, Sunday school lessons for me, and I can still remember her name with the flannel, flannel graph. I love that lady, and she was so faithful when I was just a, a rebellious little five-year-old. But anyway, creation six days. Wow, that's really foolish, isn't it, to think about it from how that happened. It's billions of years. Uh, even Grudem says billions of years. So even, even some of these guys that we elevate are, have bought into some of the evolutionary thinking. Uh, creation in six days, a worldwide flood. God could never destroy the world by a worldwide flood. It's just, it's not possible, Hugh Ross says. But, but, but it's in there. It's in the word of God. A pillar of salt, destruction of the city Sodom. Three men thrown into a, 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 a furnace and, and the executioners die even before they get to the mouth of that oven. And Jericho's walls fall. Why? By marching around it? That's ludicrous. That's, that's foolish. Samson defeated armies with what? The jawbone of a what? A donkey? Or even his ability to, to pull it. Do you know how big those arches are? That was a miraculous thing that he did. A Gideon's army, God reduced their number down to how many? 300? Wow. And then the torches and that whole surprise scheme. That was great. And then when they woke up, they just fought themselves and they didn't even have to. That was just incredible. That doesn't make sense. We want the nukes, right? We want all the tanks. We want all the arms to, to, to officiate that and God sends an angel. Or God has you marching around a city. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. A virgin birth, a feeding of thousands, manna, on the desert floor, that wasn't a bunch of mosquitoes regurgitating their food. How gross and how stupid to feed two million people. It just doesn't make sense, but it happened. And I bet that manna was really good. I wish I had manna right now. I bet you could duplicate it, couldn't you, Ronnie? No? Okay. And yet they complained about it. They complained about it. All right, I need to... You know, you're all thinking about when we get to 12, 15, you're thinking, okay, let's see, a heartache is starting to form a line outside. No, I, come on. Look at that. But um, look at verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. And, and now he's going to pull out of his, his theology some incredible theology that we need to understand that in verse uh, sola fide, right? Uh, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And what's interesting is that that whole package is together. And he's saying, and I think Paul is really concerned about the sanct sanct sanctification. Uh, you guys need to put more Christ on more. You need to let that flesh out in your relationships. But notice the package deal. 
that, that if you are truly saved in the past and you are being saved, sanctified, sanctified into holiness and sanctified in the future, sanctification has three tenses, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to start, people are going to see a difference in your life. It may not be a big difference. It took me a long time to get where I'm at right now. And I wasted a lot of years, you know, it's, it's direction, not perfection, right? And so, but yet God has got a hold of me and he's guiding each of us through uh, all of the stuff of life and we're dirtied by it, but yet we're still going in the right direction. And, and that's what's so amazing, even about how Paul basically puts these terms together. All four of the elements were handed to you as a believer when you came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, unfortunately, Dallas Theological Seminary re really divides the sanctification and justification. And, and, and when I was attending it back in 1980, Dr. Ryrie, and they, were, they were talking about this easy believism where you could believe and you could intellectually understand the gospel, but it didn't necessarily have an impact or effect on your life. And, and that, that, that's, that's wrong. Paul is saying it, it may be as minimal, it may be just flashes. We all sin, right, in many different ways, but we are progressing down that track. And, and that's really, and Paul is basically making the point that we are sanctified. And because of that, we don't have to have disunity within the body of Christ if we are obeying the word of God. And that's really possible. Lawson says this, justification and sanctification are the heads and tails of the same, quote, or the same coin. Um, there's a really good message if you want to hear it. Uh, he preached it here from our pulpit on 1 Corinthians 10.30. And he basically takes the template of this verse and lays it over the life of Jonathan Edwards. And I have listened to it to now 10 times. It is amazing. And so Steve Lawson, 1 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and it's in our, if you go to media and put that in, you'll get it. I, I really challenge all of you to listen to that. I think you'll be very encouraged. And, and, and that's just a commercial break. But the faith that saves is a living faith that is a beginning of a whole new pilgrim's progress. As the sanctifying hand of God's Holy Spirit moves us in a holy and sanctifying direction and godly walk. Bottom line, there will always be good works as a result of justification and saving faith. So it's not about Paul, is it? It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. It's not about your favorite teacher, John MacArthur, Tom Pennington. You fill in the blank. But we are in Christ Jesus who called us in, in wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And look at verse 31. Because of that, none of us can boast. The, the, the Apollos people and the Peter people and the Christ people, uh, they can't boast. And the Paul people, because it's all about Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9.24. It's awkward, uh, the wording is, in the Hebrew, but it probably better understood as, let him who boasts, boast as a result of what has been done for us, New Testament, in Christ. And that's really, um, and I love the Jeremiah 9.23 and 25. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast, in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. That gets back to his word, right? So Jeremiah is saying the same thing. He's writing to a bunch of rebellious Israelites. He's saying, get back to the law. Get back to the word. I am the Lord who exercises steadfast 
love, justice, righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. That's obedience, declares the Lord. So the only way we can boast in a righteous way is to get down into the word at the meat level and let the Holy Spirit do his thing, as Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. You know, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 3, we're talking still about division, right? We're going to be doing that all the way till chapter 4. He says, And I, brother, in verse 1, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. And he's not saying that there are different types of, you know, well, this is milk stuff in the word. We can just ignore that. He's saying it's just levels of growth, that you are at a milk level. And he's talking about them because of their disobedience, because of their carnality. You get to the meat level. Get down, down to brass tacks. Get down to, to really those truths that are going to affect your, your, your life, your sanctification. That's exactly what he drums down, and we'll learn more of that in chapter 3. So let's close. It's 12.15. Uh, I'm going to be a pumpkin for about two minutes, and then, and then we will done. Uh, factional strife, immorality, perverted ideas about marriage, the abuse of spiritual gifts, resurrection. These are complicated problems, but they're problems that churches struggle with. And, and so the only way that we can kind of sail forward in uni unity is by really paying attention to God's word. So Power, the power of God, the power of God revealed in his word and applied by the Holy Spirit is the only agent that can save us past and present. It's the power of God and superior to all earthly ways. Hope, hope for any local church. This is a Corinthian church. They had a lot of problems. Paul says, brothers, 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 brothers in the first chapter. And yet there's hope. He loved them. They were still the church. They had a bunch of problems, but hope. And, and if, if he could do that at that church, even when we have minor disputes here at Countryside Bible Church, if there's anything going on, I'm not aware of that right now, but what I'm saying is that there's hope for every church if they follow this template that Paul is laying down in the first chapter. And then we have another word, secular methods and human wisdom will fail. We need to understand that. Um, or factions arise in esteeming people over Christ. I skipped over that. And that's the, the whole I, 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 I. And then secular methods and human wisdom will fail. And then there's a correlation between unity and embracing the word of God. So notice that correlation, you know, all the way through verse 17 and then 18 to 31. And then unity begins at the local body church. So we're not talking about some, you know, ethereal thing. You need to be attending church. You need to be part of the fellowship. You need to be involved in a home group, do partners, disciple, exercise your spiritual giftedness. But that's all done in a local level. We don't really care about, we do, but we don't. What's important is what we do here at Countryside Bible Church. Unity begins at the local body of Christ. Of course, we're all going to be gathered together, right? Rapture, the message we heard today, that's a church universal. But these, these truths that we're going through right now in the first chapter are, are local church-centric truths. And then compassion should dominate our interactions. That despite uh, your, a brother or sister comes to you, I'm really struggling with this sin, we should be compassionate. Paul was so compassionate with this church. It's interesting, in Galatians, he just basically is... He just goes after them, right? There's none of this brethren and all this soupy stuff at the beginning. He goes right to the jugular. 
because he's really concerned about the Judaizers and the effect on, on the church. But here he's, he's showing the compassion. And humility leads disciples down a narrow, uh, a narrow path of self-denial and unity. Receive in humility, what does it say in James? In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So think about it. It did when you came to Christ, so it applies to non-believers coming to Christ, but it also applies to those who are in Christ and who are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then boasting must be reserved for the Almighty Trinity, right? As much as we love our Penningtons, we love our MacArthur's, we love our Lawson's, we love all those favorite teachers, you know, on, on the radio or podcasting, they're just great, but they're, they're just, you know, they're just people, but they are studying the word and they're proclaiming the word and it all goes back to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and um, even um, not really being able to recollect, you know, all that he baptized really shows us that he was as fallible as, um, as we are. Yet, when he was penning the words, um, he was being controlled by the Holy Spirit, and we have um, a perfect and clear and precise reflection, God, of what you want us to know in this book. I pray, Father, that we would be uh, resolute to study Corinthians, we be resolute to, to have it read to us and for us to sit down and read and and basically continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as a, a preventative of us uh, falling into disunity or complaining or grumbling about our brothers or sisters in Christ and understanding it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about his love for us. It's all about, Father, us falling more in love with Christ. It's all about us being obedient to Christ's words. And, and we all just give you the praise and the honor and the glory, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.